We have officially entered the dog days of summer as the calendar turns to the month of August. Which means that hopefully we're another month closer to the return of college basketball. The sport has already made its return in July with TBT being a great success and now the WNBA and NBA back in their respective bubbles in the state of Florida with the WNBA at IMG Academy in Bradenton and the NBA at Disney's Wide World of Sports. So, speaking of TBT, I've got coverage on that and so much more on this 60th episode of the Igloo. Welcome inside. I'm Tim Best. It's crazy to think we're already in the month of August. Basketball returned in July, four weeks ago today, on America's birthday, with the start of TBT, and for a week and a half, it really did capture the attention of the entire country. It delivered in every way imaginable. And I say that so sincerely and in all honesty. And I'm not trying to sound like I'm just trying to hype this thing up to infinity and beyond. TBT was that damn good for 10 straight days. And what did we get in the championship game? An instant classic between Sideline Cancer and Golden Eagles. You know, for the most part, you definitely saw a game where neither team was really able to get a major upper hand. And going into the Elam ending, it was all tied at 70. And Sideline Cancer actually went up 73-72. And then Golden Eagles took the lead on a three. And then the game-ending shot came courtesy of... And I still can't believe, out of all the players on Golden Eagles, out of all of them... It was the guy I had just interviewed like 24 hours plus before this game. Travis Diener, the ageless wonder, 38 years young, a member of Marquette's 2003 Final Four team, got a wide open corner pocket three right in front of his team's bench. And what does Travis Diener do? Of course he's going to knock it down. Automatic. You know, he'll probably say he didn't have any nerves, but I feel like he had to have just some nerves right before he took the shot. But for him, with this great shooter that he is, I just know, especially for me, if if that were me in his spot, It just would have been real comfortable for me to just get the ball in the corner, rise up, and knock it down. 
you know, at that point for a guy, especially for a guy like Travis Diener, that's just muscle memory. So how about Golden Eagles representing the Big E's real well and representing Marquette real well, you know, captivating all of Marquette Nation, uh, in getting well wishes and congratulations after they won from, obviously, Coach Wojo, D-Wade, and... It, again, Golden Eagles really gave Marquette Nation something to be really, really proud of this summer. You know, considering that just four months ago, they just had their season cut short, and it was a pretty disappointing end considering that um, the 2019-20 Marquette men's basketball team had just lost six of their final seven games heading into the Big East tournament. Uh, excuse me, uh, five of their last six. Actually, no, it was six of their last seven. I, I do, I, I corrected myself there. Because they were seven and four after they had beaten Butler on National Marquette Day. And then they lost six of their final seven regular season games. Their only win coming... On February the 26th against Georgetown at the Pfizer Forum. So the end to that season was very disappointing. Didn't get a chance to see Marcus Howard possibly do great things in the Big East and NCAA tournaments. But at least in TBT, Marquette's alumni delivered and then some. So congratulations again to Golden Eagles on capturing the 2020 TBT title, redeeming themselves from last year's heartbreaking loss in the championship game of that year's edition of TBT against Ohio State's alumni team, Carmen's Crew. So next... Highly recommend sticking around for this one. It's an interview with a guy that really doesn't get a lot of fanfare in terms of memorable players in Big East history, but for Seton Hall, his name certainly stands out as a member and one of the on and off the court leaders for Seton Hall Sweet 16 team back in the year 2000. From the nation of Lithuania, a guy who had a very successful overseas career, represented his country in the Olympics twice in 2008 and 2012, and was supposed to be inducted into this year's Seton Hall Athletics Hall of Fame class before the induction ceremony was postponed due to the coronavirus pandemic. Remontis Kokinas, he will join me next. So stick around. That interview is coming up next here on the Igloo. Welcome back inside the Igloo, episode 60. And over the past 60 episodes, you know, I've had a lot of great guests. And the hits, they're just going to keep on coming because now joining me all the way from Spain, Seton Hall, great, who had a decorated career in Europe. 
played for the Lithuanian national team twice in the Olympic Games in 2008 and 2012, and was going to be inducted into the Seton Hall Athletics Hall of Fame this summer before coronavirus postponed it. He will join that Hall of Fame in 2021 along with that year's inductees. So joining me now is Ramontis Kokanis. Ramontis, it is so good to have you on. Thanks for having me. Well, uh, I definitely want to talk about, you know, how a guy like you ends up at Seton Hall. Now, I know that you ended up playing high school ball over in the States, but there has been a bit of a precedent before you in terms of a European pipeline to the Hall. It really started, I guess, with uh, a guest that I had back in February, the great Arturis Karnaschovas. Uh, so, that um how did you end up at the hall um now we were talking beforehand how you were playing your high school ball down in the southern tier of new york state near the pennsylvania line well it's actually quite a quite a story because uh just prior a year before going to college i was just completing my uh, uh year in Lithuania and I was called to go to uh, world championships in uh, Greece uh, to play uh, for Lithuania and there I was approached by a couple uh, colleges that were interested in me and offered the scholarship but I still had one more year to go so for me I think it was the right decision to try to come to US and uh, learn some English <laughs> because uh, obviously that's uh, that's a major and most important factor in uh, in developing and uh, luckily i end up in uh, upstate new york uh, pressburg uh, central and where i had uh, uh, my best luck uh, of having great people around me that took me in uh, great coaches uh, Coach Burke and Coach Lampman that took care of, uh, of the so-called recruiting part, where they send out hundred, uh, you know, tens of uh, tapes so I could be seen at least, and then the schools could choose. And in fact, uh, had quite a few uh, interest uh, from different schools, and in the end, it was. Uh, I narrowed, narrowed it down to two schools, St. Bonaventure and Seton Hall. Uh, and because St. Bonaventure was the closest one, probably hour and a half, I think, is from, from, uh, from where I was. And Seton Hall was uh, something that was uh, quite attractive at that time for international players, where they had Arturas Karnishovas, they recruited one of my best friends, Marius Yanoulis, who played for Syracuse. Uh, they had Nikos Galis, Andrew Gays, uh, you know, numerous uh, international players. So they did have great experience in uh, recruiting players that don't speak uh, good of English. So, <laughs> so I guess, you know, so yeah, you know, on that, uh, on that note, I think it was um, quite important for me to play one of the best uh, conferences. Uh, in US and you know really challenge myself to get better and 
I'm very lucky and fortunate uh, that I had an opportunity to play for Seton Hall. And you know, and you know, since uh, since you've moved on, what's it been like to see that international pipeline continue at the Hall, especially now over the past few years, where you know, seeing guys like. Patrick Auda and into the present day with uh, Sandro Mamukelashvili, who had uh, quite a great run uh, this year, is going to be a senior going into next year. I'm, I'm you know, I'm very happy, uh, you know, for both uh, parties, uh, as of, uh, for Seton Hall and for the players, because I know it's a great school, and I would recommend uh, in no time to uh, to every single player who wants to get better and. Get a good education and play uh, highest level basketball, and uh, it's it's a school where you feel uh, it's the school is not too spread out, and so you feel very connected to all the uh, to all the students in, in at the school, and uh, you you actually have uh, sort of you feel the support, the heavy support every game so uh, it's uh, you know it's definitely uh, beautiful to see that this line is continuing and, and the school is uh, entrusting the international players yeah and it, i mean certainly in over the last few years even more so it's it's paid dividends uh so your first year and i mean you're coming in with a lot of other talented guys one of which being you know High school All-American uh, Shaheen Holloway, who ended up, you know, back at the Hall as an associate head coach and uh, now is the head man at St. Peter's. Um, that first year doesn't really, you know, go to maybe not as well as you guys want it to go. But, I mean, for a young team like that, um, you know, growing pains are expected. But in the offseason, you guys get thrown a bit of a curveball as uh, Seton Hall um, – decides to go in a different direction with the head coaching um getting rid of george blaney and bringing in young blood in tommy amaker a disciple of coach k um uh what was that transition like you know being what 19 years old at the time and already experiencing a coaching change right off the bat for me yes it was quite a big surprise however you know, uh, I was I was sure that if I will be ready to work hard, work harder than anybody on the team, and practice more, and uh, and be more concentrated, and try to win every you know every sprint, every every competition as much as I could, and do extra work after practices on my own. I think I. You know, would improve faster than others and would succeed. And uh, I think uh, uh, every time when somebody comes in new, you have to give them a chance. And this is what I felt like uh, as when Tommy came, I wanted to give him a chance to understand whether he's the right person, could be the right person for me or not. And uh, I wanted uh, to show myself that I'm, you know, worthy to play on that team and play for him. So it was it was a, it was a great challenge, and uh, uh, I think I think I took this opportunity and uh, used it quite well to improve. 
And I feel like, you know, you guys got gradually better year after year, and it was that steady improvement that kind of led to that crescendo that, you know, that ultimate peak being your senior season in 2000. But I can't even imagine just in 98 and 99 in particular, um, uh, and since it's topical with UConn returning to the Big East officially just a couple weeks ago, but back in 98 and 99, just try to put into perspective how good were those UConn teams? I mean, I know the old Big East was great in itself, but just specifically with UConn, how good were those teams just in those two years? I know in 98, uh, they lost in the regional final, but 99, um, they ended up winning the whole thing and beat a team that could have been in the conversation for being, you know, one of the top five maybe greatest teams in the history of college basketball in uh, Duke um back back in that back in that year yeah i mean the big east was a great conference uh, it was really tough and uh, you know obviously yukon uh, was one of the top teams but uh, just even looking back it's not just yukon there was so many other great teams you know every year would be uh, a new team that comes up and you know makes a lot of noise so we we had to work our way up and uh, wanted to show everyone that we're definitely as good as anybody in the conference. And unfortunately, we came up short a couple of times against UConn. My senior year, we, we could have definitely beaten them, uh, lost a couple of tight games. Then. But uh, we were sure after those games that we can play against anybody and we can beat anybody. And uh, that gave us all. A lot of confidence and uh, sort of united us as a team as uh, a lot of players became closer and, and when you feel that it's very very near and you deserve more you start working you know more harder and playing much better yeah and so, I think it, that was, uh, so in 2000 like you know you you had close calls against UConn that didn't go your way but you had some close calls that did go your way. Um, what, what, out of those, what would you say was the one that kind of like really turned the tide for you guys and cemented to yourself and to, you know, the committee that would eventually, you know, uh, make that bracket for the NCAA tournament that year? You know, hey, we belong and we're here to make some noise. I think uh, the game against St. John's that year, when we won on the road, and then uh, I think it was on the road game, if I'm not mistaken. But unfortunately, there was uh, this uh, tragic fire on Seton Hall campus. Oh, yeah. That's yeah. So it was right after their game, that game. So we felt responsible for that fire because the kids were partying, uh, celebrating our win, and uh, it's it, it sort of held us responsible and uh, picked us up and made us a better team and more united and we actually played with more than just to win games we played also for the for those for those guys for those kids and played for the school and i think that gave a lot of a lot of motivation to not let the school down well i mean 
you guys did take on that underdog role and played it very well in that 2000 tournament. And I mean, of course, because it's March, of course, there's got to be some exciting games. And in Buffalo, in the first and second rounds, of course, you're going to get thrown right into the fire and play those two very exciting games. And let's start with that first round game against Oregon. And that was an Oregon team that featured a guy that a lot of people forget about. But I mean, for me, I remember him because he won the NBA slam dunk contest in 2004 against, I mean, that that's like David being Goliath because Jason Richardson was unreal at the time, but Fred Jones won that 04 dunk contest in LA. He was Oregon star player, but you guys, you know, with a mix of older and younger talent with, you know, the older guys being you and Shaheen Holloway. And then, you know, the younger brood with uh, Samuel D'Alembert specifically, in um, a thriller, you guys beat Oregon in the first round where Holloway hit the game winner. Um, just take me through the emotions of just, you know, the highs and the lows of everything that game had in store. Well, to be, to be honest with you, actually, I was uh, quite confident that we could win because uh, – we prepared really well for that game. We knew the tactics of the team, that they were a really transitional team. They played really uh, up and down game, uh, trying to base the uh, uh, sort of uh, game on three-point shooting and uh, athletic players of uh, tr- that they could create easy points in transition. So having Sam Dallenbert on the court gave us a lot of confidence to put pressure on the shooters and drive them inside. And, uh, you know, for us, all we had to do is really be extremely focused and disciplined and make sure that everyone followed uh, the game plan and uh, just continue playing our game. And, uh, you know, we knew it wasn't going to be blowout either, you know, for any team. So um, we came out and even though the game was really tight at the end, uh, we were up and they came back and they tied the game. Then they were up uh, by two. Uh, Then in the regulation, I tied the the game, took into the overtime and then Shaheen took it to another level and we won. (laughs) So... uh, I, I remember I was not nervous at all. Uh, for some reason, I really felt like this is us. We can we can definitely stop these guys um, by using our discipline, physicality, and uh, defensive uh, sort of plan to uh, distort the game way of playing. Having Sammy under under the basket where you can uh, really affect uh, scoring of the other team. So it worked and it really did give us a lot of confidence. And that obviously, you know, transitions into a very much tougher second game against second seeded Temple. And, you know, a lot of people forget those Temple teams under Don Chaney were really, really good. And, but for you guys, you guys hit a roadblock right away and an obstacle to overcome. You lose Shaheen Holloway very early in that game. But it seemed like everyone picked up the slack in his place. You, 
for one. And then I believe it was Ty Shine, right? That had a huge, huge game. Um, and just to be able to lose your uh, your floor general, your uh, one of your captains li- like that, but to overcome all that uh, and punch your ticket to the Sweet 16 the way you, that you did, uh, how rewarding was all of that? Uh, just to say that, again, you overcome this obstacle and now you're one of the last 16 teams standing. Uh, it, it was truly a fantastic feeling after we won a game. Uh, but, uh, you know, when we stepped on the court at the beginning of the game, we were not uh, probably that calm anymore. We were pr- overly excited. So, uh, I don't know if you remember, we started the game when we were down by 10, real quick 10 points. But uh, because of our team that was actually quite a, you know, talented on three-point uh, sort of uh, shooting and quite, uh, quite creative uh, backcourt, we could actually if we knew if we would stay uh, disciplined and really find good shots, we could really knock them down and uh, get into a sort of good situation. At least put ourselves in a point to point opportunity. And, uh, and it did actually, you know, slowly, slowly we, we start, started putting pressure on, uh, on them increasing defensive effort, uh, slowing down uh, in the transition game. Uh, so all we all we had to do is just be smart on offense and find our open man. In the beginning, we were too hesitant. We didn't want to take uh, too early shots when we were open. And But I remember, like today, coach took a timeout and said, guys, when you're open, take a shot. Uh, and that was enough and everybody slowly and smartly started taking the right shots and creating for each other and crashing boards and getting the rebounds when when it was the right shot because we knew that's when the shot was coming so the discipline in that game really you know helped us because we really didn't care who's gonna score we really didn't care who's gonna do what we just we just wanted to do the right thing and take a good shot. And the good result <laughs> came out of it. Oh, yeah. And so, again, uh, in another heart-stopping kind of game, um, obviously you had to rally around everyone else once Shaw went down. And in the next round, unfortunately, you had to go without him. Uh, but even then, still was able to make it a ball game against another solid team in Oklahoma State, you know, Desmond Mason, uh, Doug Gottlieb, uh, I think it was only like a three-point loss at the Carrier Dome uh, that night. Um, but I know it's obviously a, a heartbreaking defeat. Um, but, you know, you left, leave it all on the court, obviously. But, you know, do you ever have that thought about, you know, how far could we have gone if uh, Shaw was able to play and could have overcome Oklahoma State? Duke also went down that night. So maybe he could have um, kept that Cinderella run going for a little bit longer, kept that clock from striking midnight just a little bit longer. Oh, for sure. I mean, as I said, you know, we 
we were confident and we knew that playing disciplined basketball could, could have taken us even further. Obviously, you can't protect yourself from the injuries, and this is what happened. But, uh, you know, I may sound a little bit maybe too much uh, out of sync, but we thought we could be on the run to Final Four. You know, having super talented young boys that they believed in us and trusted us, and having Shaheen uh, and Ty in the back, uh, at the point guard, you know, Darius Lane and, uh, and me. So we, we were very confident. We were very confident that we could do a lot of uh, good things. But, you know, having only. Uh, limited lineup once you have some injuries that happen throughout the tournament and you can't really make a sort of great adjustments uh, during that because then you become very predictable and you have only a couple of guys that you play with so it's i think i think we did our best out of the situation uh, however as you said with shah we definitely would have uh, had much probably longer run so, but Oklahoma State was a difficult game for us. Uh, we had a tough shooting uh, game, but uh, we still were up at some uh, couple minutes to the end, and we had a chance to really uh, to take it to another level, but uh, to another round. But um, it is it is what it is, and uh, uh, you know it hurts to think about it that we could have gone a little bit further but i'm happy i'm happy we uh you know we learned a lot from from those games and we became better and closer friends and we 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 showed the school and everyone around that we, uh, we were a great team and uh now i know like you talk about having a tough shooting night and i feel like a lot of that has to do with you know shooting into the you know the cavernous that is the carrier dome so like kind of put it into perspective for me like being on the court and just the vantage point that you see as a shooter you know with you know all this space you know looking up um in this big bubble that you know that is well it's not even known as the carrier dome anymore it's just the dome well uh i actually Throughout my career, I shot quite well at, uh, at the dome. Uh, I was. Uh, I remember actually my friend, my best friend, Marius Janulis, that played for the Syracuse. Uh, I remember his uh, always his remark, uh, sort of a, a tip from him, that at the dome you have to shoot with extremely high arch in order to. Uh, sort of to feel this, not to be bothered by the space behind the basket. And I always try to sort of elevate a little bit more and have, a, you know, so, sort of a higher arch on every shot. And it, it worked actually, <laughs> it worked quite well. And uh, so that's for me was the, 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 the tip, you know, but obviously once you start playing in the game, you you know you forget about the, these little details because it has to become a habit in order to do it consistently. So uh, yeah, so that that place was special, you know. Uh, I think to play in front of what 
35,000 people, uh, something indescribable. Man. Yeah, nothing else like nothing else like it in college basketball. And I live an hour from there. So um, now, obviously, moving on to your professional career. I mean, it was a long and decorated career that spanned over or upwards of a decade and a half. You know, you played in multiple countries. You know, you were, you know, racked up individual awards, championships, you name it. But um, obviously, you know, all those accolades, uh, I, I think they don't measure up when it comes to, you know, the line of work that I feel like you definitely take the most pride in. And that is uh, your charitable work. Um, so um, how did that, uh, how did that come about? And um, just how, how much pride have you taken in it and just in how much it's grown since its inception? So as I, as I said from the, at the beginning uh, that uh, I was very lucky to be uh, taken in by, uh, by great people uh, in upstate New York, Pratsburg, where uh, I saw uh, such a, uh, su- su- such a great atmosphere, such a great community where I really, really wanted to help and share and uh, uh, give me an opportunity to um, to succeed and uh, what they did is they uh, they took pride in helping others and they constantly used to talk about helping somebody helping that and that sort of uh, in my mind uh, when when I grow up, <laughs> when I get older, I would like to do something like that. And I do to give back. And once I was uh, already uh, later in my career, I had this opportunity to, uh, uh, to have, uh, uh, to, to create a foundation. And thanks to Lithuanian Basketball Federation that helped me out. And... Uh, with, with which we, we started helping uh, kids with cancer uh, that were battling uh, difficult diseases and uh, fighting uh, for their lives. And uh, as my father, uh, you know, he had, uh, he was battling cancer and many, uh, many of my relatives as well. And many of my, you know, friends, uh, had these opportunities to uh, to see other people in the difficult situations, and and I heard so many inspirational, motivational uh, words from them to uh, to continue this work. That gave me uh, a lot of a lot of support and help to do something good and give back, and especially when somebody really needs it. Uh, more than I than I actually I do. So I'm happy that something nice, something good could have could happen out of uh, out of the sport, which could probably save lives. And, uh, and this is this is the probably the the most important moment out of the athlete's career. Oh yeah, and I couldn't agree more. And you know, you talk about you know the effect that you know like you know cancer can have on 
people's lives it affects you know so many and you know like we just saw actually i don't know if you've been following but uh tbt uh just wrapped up a couple days ago sideline cancer their team made a cinderella run all the way to the championship game and you know like doing it all in the name of you know cancer awareness um so obviously it, it affects so many people and the fact that you know you've done it uh, you know raised awareness for it so well overseas has been you know nothing but commendable that's that's the, really the the best way i can uh um best way i can describe it and obviously you know that obviously caught the attention obviously on top of what you did during your college basketball career uh to get a call from the hall two different kinds of hall well the hall's hall of fame as in uh seton hall athletics Hall of Fame. Um, you were going to be inducted this year before the coronavirus pandemic. Postpone that. Um, but take me through uh, the day in which you got the phone call back from people within the athletics department back in New Jersey and just the emotions you were feeling upon receiving that call. It was uh, it was an like, um, amazing uh, thing because uh, it really came as a surprise. I didn't expect, I didn't think I was uh, that followed, let's say uh, per se, and I didn't think people really watching my uh, my career and my work. Uh, but I was so pleasantly surprised and happily uh, to receive this call. And uh, when he, uh, when uh, when it was mentioned that I'm gonna be inducted into the Hall of Fame, I, I mean, I got a bit <laughs> sort of, uh, you know, shocked in a positive way, and I I felt like I'm valued a little bit, but that doesn't take away from from the fact that I really appreciate it, and I. I hope uh, people understand that this is not my award. It's it's award for my team, for my teammates, for the coaches, for everyone who uh, took part in my development, who helped me in any kind of way, or or didn't help me, or uh, try to uh, you know stop me from getting better, which gave me a lot of motivation. Uh, which gave me an extra push to to become a better human being, to grow as a person, invest in myself as a as a person, and learn a, learn a lot from everything. And I think this is the key of uh, of uh, you know becoming better per, better version of yourself is to work hard, appreciate the the past, appreciate the people that. Uh, or we're in this ride with you or against you and just learn from it and keep going and keep growing. And it's it's the biggest honor for me because Seton Hall is, is uh, it's a special place for me and it will always be. And uh, I'm forever pirate. Well, and it, now, that you, now that you think about it, is it kind of crazy to think that you were on the team that la uh, the last Seton Hall team that made it to the Sweet 16. I mean, who knows what could have happened with this year's team, but, you know, looking back 20 years now exactly, is it crazy to think that after all this time that group was still the last 
Seton Hall team to, like I said, reach that Sweet 16. Yeah, it's 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 actually unusual uh, and a bit surprising for me, but uh, but I guess that's how the time flies. <laughs> that's how fast the time flies. Uh, I think I really felt this year's team would have made a lot of noise, uh, but you know how it is. It's uh, in in these kind of tournaments, one game you you have a bad shooting night can go wrong. And for teams that just uh, nothing special can catch fire in three, four games, and they can end up in uh, knocking everybody out. So uh, you never know because at the end, the tournament is is uh, it's a tournament. It's called March Madness. <laughs> it's so such a pity, you know, that Seton Hall had this great team this year and just couldn't. Uh, and, have this opportunity just to even play so that's that hurts a lot but uh but we all know deep in our hearts uh, you know they made a they, they had and they played beautiful basketball and they really had a great run and uh, i'm sure this team uh, these players will go on and have successful careers and uh, have uh, will achieve a lot a lot in the future yeah, and, um, you know, to speak on that overall, you know, like this team and the success that they've obtained, not just this year, but just in the past, like, five years, really, um, you know, obviously you seem in tune and, you know, follow, have followed along with this team, you know, for quite a while. So, you know, what's it been like watching this team, you know, return back to prominence, you know, at a level that we haven't seen in – quite some time it's it's a joy you know it's see the hall is a powerhouse and always wanted to be and um, want to be favorites and want to be challenged and want to be you know treated as a, as, a, as an important school and i think all of us uh, that went to school attend pass and will come to school want to have that uh, history, that culture, the culture of uh, the school that plays, played very good basketball. And I think this is uh, something that we always want to talk about and uh, be very proud of it. And, uh, I am sure this, this is not going to be the last time they made this great team. It will continue. Uh, uh, continue growing, continue getting better, continue uh, with this with this streak. Because I felt that the teams in the past three, four years have been growing and going in the right direction. And this is a reward year. It was supposed to be a reward year. Yeah, and um, another th um, one of those guys that was able to bring in players that, you know, made a lot of those teams great, you know, a former team of the year, Shaheen Holloway. Um, uh, I got, I got a, now I know he moved on to St. Peter's, but, um, you know, have you, you know, do you like stay in touch with him, you know, and have you followed what he's been doing, you know, nearby at St. Peter's, you know, he's only in what year two and, you know, he had, a, he had a great opportunity this year to take the Peacocks to the NCAA tournament in the Metro Atlantic. 
Yes, uh, you know, Shai is a leader. Uh, Shai is a leader. He's not afraid of anyone. Uh, he he knows what he can do, and he's a, uh, you know, he comes from from this area. From he knows all the you know all the basketball in and outs, and uh, he can make the players better. And he knows what to do and how to put the players in the right you know situation and get them better. So I think it was uh, the right thing to do to uh, to try to uh, become a head coach which obviously who doesn't want to become a head coach and uh, I see a bright future for him uh, he's uh, you know he's a point guard so he's a creator so he creates opportunities not only for himself but for uh, the players as well and uh, can't be more ha- I can't be happier know for him because he deserves it he deserves all the success because what a my you know my uh, my backward teammate for four years and we went through difficult things and joy and sadness and all kinds of stuff and uh, you know I can't be more happier than that for him because he's the guy who who really really wanted to be uh, the person that can make things happen and be a true leader and that's what it is now yeah i think he's 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 stepped on that highway let's say sort of say where you can just ask to uh, just go that direction and he'll be fine and uh, definitely the last thing I want to ask, um, I did, uh, with your Olympic experience and representing your country, you know, in the summer games, you know, Beijing in 08, London in 2012. Um, 2012, I, I was actually looking into this. And in terms of point margin, you actually gave Team USA their toughest game. You only lost to them by five, whereas in the gold medal game, although – Team USA ended up outscoring Spain by, you know, they were only up one going into the fourth quarter of the gold medal game against the Spaniards. It was actually you guys who only lost by five compared to seven. So I got to, I can't even imagine just with the overall talent, like prime LeBron for one. Um, And then obviously, you know, it's it's crazy. It's been six months since we lost the, the great Kobe Bryant, but just to, I mean, to face those guys, watch them in the flesh. Just what was that like, especially with prime LeBron? Uh, you know, LeBron is a great player in everything. Uh, but I would say he's more of a – he's probably a great athlete. Uh, you know, his, his athleticism and strength takes him to another level. However, his skills is not – some of the best, you know. Uh, my opinion, uh, from the my experience, uh, all the players that I played with, uh, Kobe Bryant was by far, by far, the best player I've ever played against. Uh, you guarded him, right? Sorry, I, I would. I should add, yeah, I should add KD because KD was just truly unstoppable. But overall, understanding of the game, mentality. And the IQ is Kobe Bryant. 
I mean, he read the game because of all the defensive uh, matchups, all the changes, all the traps that we used. Kobe Bryant was the most smartest player. He's, he made every right decision. Every single decision that he did on the court was correct. Like he understood and read it so well that none of the other players on the U.S. team could do it. And uh, that's why I always say that, you know, skills, it's not just enough skill. It's, it's, it's important to understand the game. So LeBron is a great player, for sure. One of the greatest. However, Kobe Bryant, to me, is, is on another level. And uh, KD was simply just impossible to stop because of his, how high his release uh, of his shot was and you just couldn't <laughs> challenge his shot. So, so at that time, I think even KD was, uh, it's, hard, it's harder to stop KD. But, and overall, US was a very good team. You know, yeah. we tried to use the weaknesses uh, here and there to attack the weaker players, maybe. But, uh, you know, U.S. Uh, can just turn it up <laughs> and uh, change the game. So I got to ask you also, I, Kobe had a reputation for talking to his opponents. Did he talk to you at all when you faced each other? <laughs> Yeah, you know, after the you know after the game, uh, after the games, you know, hug and uh, sort of thank each other for the you know because we actually, matter of fact, before Beijing Olympics, we had a camp together with the USA in Macau, and we had some friendly uh, friendly games, and uh, you know we after one game actually you know we shared the. Uh, a couple of words here and there, and he wished me best of luck, and you know, keep keep getting better, keep going hard, and you know, with all this, his face was so serious, <laughs> you know, he's just a killer face, and, uh, but he was so focused and you know, very serious about every every single word that he was saying. So that that remains in my memory about him. Yeah, and, it, and the funny thing is, it's crazy to think, um, fun fact, in the McDonald's All-American game in 1996, it wasn't Kobe Bryant who was MVP. It was your teammate, Shaheen Holloway. And that's, I think that's a great way to end this. So, yeah, Shaw was the MVP, yeah. Exactly. <laughs> Let's go, Shaw. <laughs> All right. Well, hey, Ramontis, it was a pleasure having you on. Uh, again, congrats on getting the call to the Seton Hall Athletics Hall of Fame. Um, definitely looking forward to seeing you get inducted next, uh, whenever they do it. Hopefully, maybe maybe they might do it in the fall or the winter this year or whenever next year, but I'll definitely be looking forward to that. Uh, stay, safe, uh, stay safe in Spain, and um, again, keep doing what you're doing with your charity. It's re it really is God's work, so God bless you on that. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for having me and really appreciate this interview and thank you for some great memories. Welcome back. Big thank you again to Ramontis Kokinas for a great interview. Talked about a long list of topics ranging from 
an improbable run to the Sweet 16 to honor the three young men that were lost in the unfortunate Bolin Hall fire back in January of that year, as well as, you know, playing against the late, great Kobe Bryant in the Olympics and also not only guarding him, but just being around him and really getting a true understanding of how, just how, how great of a player he was and how much of a student of the game of basketball he was. So moving on, it is time for an icebreaker. I know I haven't done one of these in a really long time and considering, you know, what's been happening in this country over the past couple months, I think it's about time for me to finally speak up and say something about this. This icebreaker, and I feel like it's relevant, especially with the Big East, it is about, I can really just simplify it with just three letters, and that is B-L-M. What does that stand for? I think everybody knows this by now. Black Lives Matter. They do. They always have. And they always will. And they absolutely should. And frankly, if you disagree with that statement, just turn off my podcast now. Because I really, honest to God, I would not want anyone who has an ounce of racism in their body listening to this podcast. And the reason why I say that is you absolutely have to bear in mind the players on the court and a a very good chunk of the coaches on the sidelines especially in this conference in a sport that is that ha- in a sport that has a vast majority of players that are african americans and and with this conference that before the addition of Yukon at the beginning of July, exactly half of their coaches were African American. Laval Jordan from Butler, Dave Lado from DePaul, the Hall of Famer, Patrick Ewing from Georgetown, Ed Cooley from Providence, Mike Anderson from St. John's. And then on top of that, Look at all of the African-American assistant coaches around the Big East. You know, the most prominent one being a guy who has had, you know, a history of being a great head coach himself. You know, he, before Kevin Willard, he was the last 
guy to take Seton Hall to the NCAA tournament. Louis Orr, you know, a, a legend at Syracuse and one of the first major recruits that Jim Beheim got back in 1976 when he took over for Roy Danforth after he left and took the job at Tulane. There's a little history lesson for you. You know, you look at all the other assistant coaches that are African-American in the Big East. Um, At Seton Hall, Tony Skin, who was a starter on George Mason's Cinderella Final Four team back in 2006. Dwayne Woodward, who was an assistant coach for several years under the great King Rice at Monmouth. Uh, Billy Garrett Sr. at DePaul, another example. You know, I I can really uh, go on and on about, you know, just some of the great assistant coaches that are African-American in the Big East. You know, I, you know, Louis Orr, obviously at the forefront. And then, on top of that, you have Like I said, um, from Seton Hall, you know, the ones that I know for a fact, and I'm sorry that all these names are just eluding me um, from the other schools, but obviously I know from Seton Hall, Tony Skin and Dwayne Woodward. Um, but if you look at the sidelines in any Big East co- conference game, you know, you're going to see a lot of African-American coaches. And out of those 10 schools before the addition of UConn, half of them, the head man, was a black man. And all five of them are damn good head coaches. And I I know I'm going to get some shit, and people are going to disagree with that, but you know what? Compared to other coaches that these programs have had, you know, you can make a fair argument that, you know what, maybe they were better than their predecessors. I mean, St. John's, at least in my opinion, I feel like that's a true statement. Like, there is no way you can tell me that Chris Mullen is a better coach than Mike Anderson. Don't don't get me wrong. Chris Mullen... Hall of Famer, and that's what he was a Hall of Famer for, being on the court. What he what he has nothing on, Mike Anderson, is with coaching. I'm sorry, that's the truth of the situation. Just look at what Mike Anderson did at the end of the season. I mean, he had some troubling times, but he rallied those guys together to win two out of their last three games. 
come back to beat Georgetown in the Big East tournament. Had Creighton in the Big East tournament in the quarterfinals. And he had them, the top seed, well, playing the top seed, they were up by three at the half before the game was called at intermission. Not to mention, you know, he led Arkansas to the NCAA tournament several times. Um, Talking about Laval Jordan. You know, he has an NCAA tournament win under his belt. He was going to get his second tournament bid in three years this year. Patrick Ewing, in terms of the past three years, he's slowly but surely starting to reverse the final two years of the JT3 era. Granted, this past year did not end the way that him and his staff wanted to. But considering the major prospect that they just landed from Long Island, and keep in mind, St. John's was in the running for him too. Now that's a major get, and that's going to help Georgetown greatly moving forward. I know they've lost McClung, Akinjo, LeBlanc. Yurt 7, just to name a few, but... You know, in the long haul, Patrick Ewing might be the right guy moving forward. And, and of course, we can't not, before I get to him, uh, and with DePaul, for example, you know, Dave Lado, he was the head coach of the Blue Demons the last time this team made the NCAA tournament way back in 2004 and until things kind of, took a turn for the worse you know this season after a 12 and 1 start and you know the big east grind got to his team DePaul was looking really damn good you know they had a couple really really good wins you know they beat Boston College Iowa Minnesota on the road they beat Texas Tech on their home court they beat previously number five Butler Back in mid-January. Dave Lado, I feel like he doesn't get enough credit for being as good of a coach as you know people make him out to be, honestly. I mean, take a look at where DePaul was 10 years ago. Just think about it. I mean, this was a team that if they won three conference games, that would be considered a almost a miracle. I remember in 2009 when they went 0-18 in conference. And, you know, the first two years in the new Big East, before Lato's return under Oliver Purnell, another African-American head coach, they went 3-15 one year, 6-12 the next and when Lado took over, granted his first two or three years, it was 
kind of a hard process. Year one, three and fifteen. Year two, two and sixteen. Year three, improvement, four and fourteen. And then year four, seven and eleven. And then and that year also participated in the CBI and nearly won it, but lost in the finals against the University of South Florida. And then this past season, you know, with that promising 12-1 and start, I mean, still, before the pandemic ended the season back on March 12th, you know, that DePaul team was 16-16. and So, you know, that gives Dave Lado, you know, even though... In my simulation, they would have lost to Villanova on Thursday night of the Big East tournament, which would have dropped them below 500. That would have given DePaul another, I mean, mean, in literal records, in the record books, they're going to show DePaul has now had back-to-back seasons of going at least 500. And I think that's a pretty big deal. And Dave Lado, you know, I know if DePaul people are going to listen to this and they're going to say, no, it's not him, it's not him. Like, part of this has to be attributed to him or a good portion of it. But Dave Lado has had a big part in why DePaul isn't as shitty as they had been, you know, going back to the early part of the 2010s, you know? And then finally, of course, can't not talk about this without talking about Ed Cooley. I mean, took over in 2011, and slowly but surely, he he has turned Providence into a regular contender for the NCAA tournament. His first year, of course, you're going to see the, the trials and the turbulations, and they struggled. His second year, his team was the number eight seed in the Big East tournament. And then year three, they win their first Big East tournament in 20 years and make it to their first NCAA tournament in 10 which started a string of making it to the NCAA tournament five years in a row. They made it to the, they missed the tournament in 2019, still played in the NIT, and we're going to go back to the NCAA tournament in 2020, which would have given him a sixth tournament appearance in seven years. That's because Ed Cooley is a damn good head coach. And a coach that has attracted a lot of great African-American players. I mean, I mean, just take a look at some of the unbelievable talents he's had. I mean, even at the early parts of his coaching tenure, Kadeem Batts, Bryce Cotton, LaDante Henton, 
Chris Dunn, Ben Benzel, Alpha Diallo, Kyron Cartwright, Rodney Bullock, Luan Pipkins, unbelievable transfer yet. Ed Cooley's a proven winner. And you know what? Like, as MLK said, judge people not by the color of their skin, but the content of their character. Ed Cooley is not only a winner on the court, but a winner in life. Just like with all of those other African-American coaches I mentioned because they carry themselves so well. They are such tremendous representatives of themselves, their teams, and their universities and the Big East Conference. It's a fact. Now, how am I going to tie this into Black Lives Matter? Great question. Of course, I got to turn this into something a little more personal. Obviously, in upstate New York, there's not a lot of diversity, at least in the area where I live. The high school I went to in a graduating class of about 260. I only graduated with maybe five African Americans and no more than 10 POCs, in other words, people of color. So non whites. And by the way, like, there were a lot of, well, not a lot of, but a decent amount of, you know, kids of Russian heritage, Bosnian heritage, because, uh, fun fact, Utica was a, uh, it was one of the designated cities from the United States for um, Bosnian refugees to settle in when all the unrest was going on in the former Yugoslavia back in the mid-90s. So that's why a lot of Bosnians ended up immigrating uh, here, to, here to my city of Utica, New York and, you know, the surrounding area. So, of course... Um, in my graduating class, you know, I had, you know, a couple Bosnian kids as well as, you know, a couple Russians. So, obviously, there wasn't a lot of diversity. So, you know, for the first 18 years of my life, pretty much, you know, I, I was living in this cultural bubble. And, honest to God, Seton Hall... And going there really got me out of that cultural bubble and especially being around the guys on the basketball team there 
and being sweet mates with one of them and essentially being taken in as like an honorary family member of theirs, you know, being around the guys, you know, at the time, you know, Isaiah Whitehead, uh, Kadeen Carrington, Angel Delgado, Desi Rodriguez, Ishmael Sonogo, Derek Gordon, when he came in, being the first openly gay college basketball player, that was a big deal, getting him to Seton Hall. You know, and honestly, I learned, and Mike, Michael Lindsay too, like, I learned so much from those guys. I learned about how different life was for them growing up. And honestly, another big thing, my freshman year of college, I got a culture shock right away because my roommate was black. So that was a culture shock right then and there for me. But again, you know, I don't want to say like, I don't see race. Like, like if if you're not acknowledging race, then it's just plain ignorant. Obviously, you notice, you know, someone's race, of course. But for me, it didn't affect how I I treated treated him. I just saw him as my roommate. We were going to be living together and, you know, I just want to make things work. I want him to be cool with me. I want him to be like, I, I want to be cool with him. And, you know, we made it work out. And honestly, you know, for most of the freshman year, I mean, we, we didn't have any, you know, clashes where we were like butting heads. Like we had a really good dynamic um, I wouldn't say it's to this extent, but it was like that of like Julius and Gary Bertier in Remember the Titans. Um, because I mean, with Julius and Gary, like be, being like brothers with each other. And it really was like that a lot with me and my roommate, Jerome. But you know, I was really grateful that I had that experience because it got me to really understand what he had to go through, what he has to go through versus what I have to go through because he's had to get racially profiled. I've never had to be racially profiled for something. And another instance, I remember back in 2016 when Isaiah Whitehead declared for the draft. I'm not going to lie to you. I was pissed off at him. Like, I'm like, how could you do this? And then, you know, once I saw stuff going on in his life, and once I realized, you know, once he explained, you know, I'm trying to provide for my mom and doing everything I can to make her happy. 
I, I close my mouth. I'm like, you know what? If you left early to fulfill your dream and, you know, do everything you can to provide for your mom, I respect the hell out of you for it. And Isaiah Whitehead is one of the most humble, kind people I have ever met in my life. Probably has more character, honestly, in his pinky than a lot of people that, you know, I've seen on Facebook who are in my Facebook feed that I'm friends with who are just so ignorant and so willing to discredit this movement of Black Lives Matter. And the most prominent example of it being with Blue Lives. Let me make this very, very clear. I I respect police officers. I respect all law enforcement officers. I, I respect the line of work that they're in. What they sacrifice... I know that there are a lot of officers who might be in it for the wrong reasons, if you will, that might make a lot of poor decisions that cost people their lives, as we have seen with you know such cases as George Floyd. But again... That shouldn't be an encapsulation for all law enforcement. However, I will say this. I do not tolerate the kind of shit that that people say when it comes to like, well, do you think that maybe you won't be harassed if you just obeyed the law? Like, that would be like saying, no, no, that would literally be like you going, walking up to Jesus Christ in the middle of his crucifixion and saying, uh, no, he deserved it because he was breaking the law. Literally, that's exactly what. What's happening? And I have just seen so many instances, like, again, of blue, uh, of people saying, like, blue lives matter. Like, let me, I'm going to make this very clear. Like I said, I respect law enforcement, what they sacrifice, and all that, as I said before. But Blue Lives Matter is, like, blue, you know what Blue Lives are? Blue Lives are a choice. You choose to become a police officer. You do not choose to be black. You do not choose what race you are. 
Listen, I didn't choose to be white, for example. Like, to put this into better terms, a police officer can come home and take off their uniform. An African-American can't come home and take off the color of their skin. Okay? It's that simple. And yet, these simple-minded people want to still say that stupid shit to discredit BLM. And, I'm, and I do not stand for that. I'm sorry. And not to mention, keep in mind where I am in upstate New York. This ain't New York City. And where I am, you have a lot of people who go around acting like wannabe rednecks. When in all likelihood, they probably never even stepped foot on a farm in their entire life. That's the honest to God truth. I know it. You don't see me walking around with like like a bandana around my neck and like, you know, toothpick toothpick in my mouth with a straw hat on. You know, acting like a redneck. Because I know what I grew up in. I know who I am. And the thing is with these people that I do know, they clearly don't get it. And until they step outside of their comfort zone and outside of this cultural bubble like I did, they probably never will. And that's what's sad about all of this. And it's just embarrassing because I remember this person sharing this post and someone said, I wonder what your black friends would say about this. And this guy had the nerve to say, they agree. Well, first of all, you don't speak for them. And secondly, you can get your bootlicking wannabe redneck ass out of here with that BS. Again, when it comes to this platform or any other, I don't mince my words. I speak my truth. And if you got a problem with it, you don't got to put up with it. If you don't like it, you can just go. Like the Big East says with their new coalition, be the change. And you know what? As a white man, I stand as an ally because I want to be the change that my former pirates that I rooted for for four years and on 
as an alumnus for the last two. I stand with them. I'm an ally for them. I want to be the change that they want and the change that I want. For them and for all of us as a country because we all can do better to make this country a better place. Black Lives Matter. Say their names. That does it for this episode of the Igloo. Coming up on the next episode, I'm going to break down the results of the simulated March Madness bracket that I did, starting with the first four in the opening round. Might get into the second round, time permitting. And then in future episodes, be on the lookout. I've got an interview with Butler legend Kellen Dunham. So until next time, this is Timmy Ice signing off from the Igloo. Thanks for tuning in. And never forget, Black Lives Matter.